on this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. One of the things that teachers can do is assure parents, you know, that their their child is a whole person, not just a brain in a jar, and that you see the child as a whole person and be a resource hub. You're never going to be able to say the one magic sentence that's going to change the parent's mind. But if you connect them with enough resources, if you make it okay for kids to be just kids, to just be a normal person and not be perfect. And if you celebrate the parent, parents just want to be reassured that they're making the right choices for their kids. And so I think a lot of times teachers, we don't, we get so caught up in the content and test scores and things like that and, and behavior that we forget that what every parent wants to hear is, I love your kid. That and a whole lot more coming up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Adventures in Being Gifted podcast. I'm Jill Hartsock. And I'm Jessica Mullen. And we're two experienced gifted teachers and your hosts. This podcast is a place for parents, educators, and students living the gifted adventure. All right, Jessica, today we have with us one of the most well-known experts in gifted education. Our guest has written many books. She's had a blog for many years, sharing lots of resources. Even our podcast is on her list. Um, great, great resource for parents with lots of articles that she's written or found, but she also is known as the gifted guru. Today we have Lisa Van Gemmert, who is going to join us to talk about perfectionism, which as GISs in the gifted world every day, we see so many different types of perfectionism in our classroom and it always shows up differently in different personalities and different students. We see the student who writes something and erases it and writes something and erases it or struggles getting things on paper because they want it to be perfect. Or we see students not taking risks and holding back because they're afraid of getting something wrong. Or we also have students who avoid and they will tell us they don't feel good and want to go to the nurse while we do an activity or a thinking skill. So I think what Lisa brings to the table today is a lot of wonderful perspective of not just one age bracket or age group, but just what happens to, well, what happened to her as a child and as she grew up into high school and college and now as an adult, um, what, you know, the process is of, of struggling with perfectionism or maybe not struggling, but dealing with perfectionism. Yeah, I can't wait to hear all of her experiences and the tips that she's going to provide for our audience. All right, so listen up. Would you mind just going ahead and telling us a little bit about your background with your career? I went to a lot of colleges. Um huh because we moved. Well, I started college and ran out of money. And mm-hmm. so I went to a community college and finished like two years there and then transferred. And then I had it all planned out. I got married. I was expecting a baby and I had it exactly planned that I would graduate from college and then have the baby. But I developed a condition in my pregnancy called hyperemesis gravidare which because I'm an English major is the same thing that actually killed Charlotte Bronte. Mm. And I, I nearly died. So I would, I had to drop out of school my last year and the last year of college took me 10 years to finish because we just kept moving. I was changing. I did some of it in Germany. In any event, I have an undergraduate degree. I finally took my degree from the university of Texas at Arlington and my undergraduate degree had double major, really English and social studies or political science, really English and political science. And from their honors college. And I graduated on my transcript. It said like rank in school, like rank in the university 
one and I was all excited until I found out that like everybody with a 4.0 was the number one rank. So there are 25,000 students at the university. So I was not at all special because so many of them were <laughs> number one. Anyway, I think there were like 300 <laughs> people who were ranked number one, which to me is like the ultimate, let's give everyone a trophy, right? Mm-hmm. And so then after that, the university offered a special scholarship called the Bridge to Graduate School Fellowship. And if you graduated from their honors college, which I had, then and you wanted to study in the same field, you could they would pay for the tuition for your master's. And so I continued on and I did a master's and they have a great program there that's an MEDT. So it's a master's of education in teaching. So it's actually a pedagogy degree. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very unusual. There are a lot of curriculum instruction degrees, a lot of ed ad degrees, like educational administration, lots of things. And I did go back and take another master's in educational administration, but I love having that MEDT and it, it definitely impacted my teaching. I hear so many teachers talk about how they didn't really learn how to be a teacher when they were in college. But I can say that my master's degree definitely prepared me because they taught us really practical things. And they've influenced me as a professional development facilitator as well, just because I knew what was helpful to me. Wow. Um, and was that all yeah. at the University of Texas? All at UTA. Yeah, the second master's degree was on my own dime, but the first one they fully paid for. Nice. So then yeah, you were in program. the education field. How long were you a teacher? A hundred years. No. <laughs> Felt um, like it. <laughs> yeah. So about 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay. A little, a little less, like, because it was, I was moving back and forth. I became an assistant principal, but I didn't like it. I thought I was going to have a lot of, they hired me to do like curriculum instruction. And I thought I was going to have a lot of influence that way. But it turned out that really all I was doing was sending kids who made bad choices to default. And Mm. so I I didn't care for that. And so I returned to teaching and then I was at Mensa for six years as their youth and education ambassador, but all that time I was still teaching. And even as I transitioned into just doing consultation, I still teach. So I do, I live stream English classes on YouTube that kids watch and participate in. And uh, some of those classes have had 200 kids in them at one time. Oh, wow. And it's not for any kind of credit. They just come because they want to come to an English class. And is that in the United States or internationally? We've had kids from France, Canada, all over. All over. Wow. Um, yeah. I would say the core group is in the United States um, who come all the time. Um, but yeah, so I still do that. I also still go in and do essentially like a GT pullout, but not a consistent one. Like a school district will bring me in and I'll pull their kids out for a day and work with them primarily on social emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. I do. I've done quite a bit with suicide prevention among gifted then I'll do, sometimes I'll do instructional stuff. So sometimes if there's a school district that is having trouble with um, just making their gifted program look like they want it to, they'll have me go in and teach actual content. So my certifications are, I have, I have a very broad range of certifications because I've taught elementary school and secondary school, and I am certified to teach early childhood through 12th grade. Okay. So I have an early childhood through sixth grade generalist. So that's all content areas, including PER and music. And then for secondary, so seventh through 12th, I have language arts and social studies composite, which is, you know, economics, sociology, history, government, geography, all of that. And then I also have a gifted and talented certification and principal. Nice. So let's go back really quick to the suicide connection and teaching um, prevention, because that's really interesting. And that is something I'm curious about how you got into that, like, piece, you know? I, I got into suicide prevention with gifted youth because of two things. Number one, the rising rates of suicide mm-hmm. 
attempts, ideation, and completions in especially, there's a suicide belt in the United States. Um, it goes all along the Intermountain West. It starts like in Montana. It goes all the way down to Nevada and it includes Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, like all these states right there. There's this line. Like the suicide rate in Nevada is higher than New York City. Wow. So is a very strange, right? Hmm. And I got interested in that because any kind of data anomaly intrigues me. But the second thing that happened was, and I have permission to share this because I dedicate all of my suicide prevention presentations to him, is that while I was an assistant principal, there was another assistant principal named Kelly who looked a lot like me. And we used to, we used to fool our students all the time. And she has a, had a son, Josh, who was the exact same age as my son, Jonathan. And they were both graduating from high school that year. They both went on to college. Josh was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And he, he was extraordinarily gifted intellectually, also a gifted athlete, played soccer at the University of Arkansas. And he could not, he almost overthought it right? Because he could not figure out a way through. Hmm. He, he, the medication made him feel not like himself, but without it, obviously you're not going to function Mm -hmm. if you have schizophrenia. And he ended up killing himself. And that experience, like I, at his funeral, I just thought we have to talk about this more. We have to be talking about this all the time. It has to be something, it can't, it cannot be a secret. It cannot be hush hush. It cannot be surrounded in shame. It must be open. It must be talked about. And so I started working on suicide prevention by researching everything there was, by calling people and interviewing people. My best friend is a therapist. That was helpful. We actually recorded, it's free. It's on my YouTube channel, a whole series of suicide prevention, what teachers can do Hmm. to prevent suicide, or at least to try, right? Um, Because you can't control anybody else's behavior. You may have noticed this. I noticed this when my oldest son was two years old and I couldn't even get him in a car seat because he turned into like a 34 inch surfboard and would not bend. <laughs> yep, and <laughs> you, you can't control people yep. even though you think you can. And the topic that we were going to have you on today to talk about is perfectionism. How did you become such an expert expert in perfectionism? I love your book. There's so many knowledgeable and useful things for, you know, m- me as a teacher, me as a mom, um, so kind of tell us a little bit about your perfectionism. And well, if you've read the book, yes, I was just going to say that, that in your own experience with perfectionism, <laughs> you know, that I am a native of perfection yes. land. Um, so I, I just always had perfectionistic tendencies. I, I, I kind of had a lot of the soup that cooks perfectionism. So one of the things that will cook perfectionism is just high ability. It's, it's natural for people of high ability to have high expectations of themselves, right? Like it wouldn't be normal if Michael Phelps just was like, yeah, I'm going to jump in the pool, swim a few laps. This seven-year-old might beat me, whatever. Right. That's not, that's not how that works. Right. Like, and so that, that was part of it. Another part of it was that when I was a child, um, I was sexually molested by a neighbor mm-hmm. and spent second through mm-hmm. sixth grade testifying against him until he finally pled guilty to 300 counts of child wow. molestation. Oh, and so. so that is part of it as well. That cooks it, you know, that's part of the soup. That and then torches I had a somewhat um, abusive, like, yeah, I had an abusive childhood and mm-hmm. um in my own family and so all of that kind of cooked together to make me more tr- like more concerned with outward appearance very very concerned with controlling everything i could control because so much of my life was out of my control what hmm. what point did you realize that you were really bright and intelligent in the midst of this cooking when i was In fifth grade, my school did their gifted screening and they did, I was given a stand for Binet LM and which is the 
the LM is no longer, it's the original Stanford Binet. It's, it's not a perfect instrument. Um, it's a little bit better than the current Stanford Binet, only that it doesn't have a ceiling. The current Stanford Binet does, which is unfortunate. However, the one that I was given is definitely racially and socioeconomically biased. So mm. it's definitely good that it's been revised. But when I was taking that test, I remember the woman giving it. It was absolutely my favorite day ever at school because she was just like all these puzzles and big words and it was awesome. And I I can still remember some of the things on it. I remember seeing a picture of someone standing, like a line drawing of someone standing in front of the sun and their shadow being cast toward the sun. And I remember her saying, what's wrong with this picture? I'm like, shadow has to go away from the sun and not toward the sun. And it was the things like that. And I was like, this is fun. Hmm. And there was at one point where I was asked a question. I wish I could remember what it was, but I don't. But there was one point where I was asked a question and when I answered it and I answered it quickly, she tilted her head in a way that I knew, I, I just knew. Hmm. I was like, oh, she's seeing something here. And then I scored in the fourth standard deviation from the mean. And wow. that was, when, which I did not know. I knew I got moved into a gifted magnet, but I didn't know what I had scored until I was in high school. And I stole my cum folder out of the counseling office one day. You did not. <laughs> oh my gosh. 100%. I stole things out. Well, well, I had a reason. And that was that when I was in and going through that court case, the attorneys for the child molester served my school with a subpoena for all of my school records. And in the subpoena, it said that my school records would show that I was an unreliable witness. That subpoena was... my entire school life and so when I was in 11th grade I didn't like that being my identity I went into the counseling office snuck in there found the filing cabinet opened it up this is before people locked stuff and (laughs) stole the subpoena which I have now in my own possession but I wanted to own it oh my goodness but going back to even not even knowing your score that's when I found my test though. Yeah. Not knowing my score. Right. I just I feel like in. kids should know yeah. that. Like it's, it's a shame they that we're not, you know, sharing, sharing that. that information with kids. I get into so much trouble about this. I've written about it. Why you should tell kids they're gifted. It's on my website, a whole article. Um, I feel like if you had a child who had diabetes, nobody would say, well, don't tell them. Right. Yeah. Like nobody would say that it's information about them. It doesn't make any sense. And it's not like the kid doesn't recognize they're different. I recognized I was different from a very early age. I mean, when I was reading Nancy Drew's and everybody else is reading, you know, picture books still, right? Like, <laughs> I can remember my, my middle son coming home from school the first day of first grade, he came home and he's like, we need to have a talk because these kids can't do multiplication they can't, some of them cannot even read. You don't, you don't, I don't have to sit them down and say, well, Jonathan, we need to have the gifted talk, you know, like the birds and the bees almost like we don't have to do that. They already know they're different. You can go into any kindergarten class in the world, not just the United States, go to any kindergarten class in the world and ask those five-year-olds, who's the smartest kid in this class? And they will all point to the same kid. Yeah. Yeah. It, It is obvious. And yet it's, it, I feel like it, it is because our society, our, our philosophy is very collectivist in some ways, um, not in other ways, um, but in some ways we have this feeling of it's not okay for anybody to be better than other people at anything and that we, we privilege and preference self-deprecation rather than self-acknowledgement. Right. It's a, like the identity unit we do in our, with our students, you know, just embrace who you are and just be okay with being that identity. Yes. One of the things that I get frustrated with is that people want to rebrand giftedness by calling it something else Mm. as if they think that whatever they called it, that thing would take on the connotation. I like the term gifted because I think it implies it was a gift. You did not do anything to earn it. So therefore you need have no pride. Yeah. 
And I think that's something that we try really hard to teach our third graders that it's okay that you have that identity, you have that piece to you, but how can we live in this world with other people? So that would be my question to you, Lisa, in regards to perfectionism. How do you handle that gifted characteristic to go with that gifted identity? Well, not all perfectionists are gifted and not all gifted students or children are perfectionists. So that that is something. But I would say that if you have, I think you, you really have two things to unpack in your question. One is how do you manage perfectionism in a gifted child? And the second thing is how do gifted children navigate a typical learner world? Um, Go for it. And those are those are two separate things. So I would say for the most part, to develop a typical learner world is to manage your expectations and to recognize that you're not always going to be, you're not, you're not always going to be happy with the choices that are made by others. And that that is part of living in a world and that everybody has that. I think a lot of gifted learners think that there's something special about the way that they object to the way that things are being done. But Everybody is living in a world that wasn't exactly made for them. You know, some people are are much taller than everybody else or much shorter than everybody else. And that makes navigating the world more difficult. Some people are living somewhere where other people don't speak their literal language, right? So everybody's trying to navigate the world. I think part of what allows a gifted student to navigate the world better is to accept that giftedness does not make you a different species. <laughs> it just impacts the way that you see things and the way that you process things. Exactly. And it makes, and it makes, it, it puts a little bit of extra burden on you to try to see things from other people's perspective in a way that might challenge you while simultaneously recognizing that other people are doing the same for you. The second thing, the second part of of your question of perfectionism. Well, of course I wrote a whole book, so I could definitely talk about it until tomorrow. But <laughs> but I would say that the most important thing, like if there could be one big takeaway, it would be that perfectionism is a continuum, not a dichotomy. It's yes. not that you're either a perfectionist or not. We all have perfectionistic tendencies in certain areas of our lives. And we and we may be more perfectionistic at certain uh, periods of our lives, stages of our lives, right? I'm definitely, uh, my house looks a little bit different now than it did when I had, you know, a bunch of foster children. I had four foster children and my own children, right? Like I had, oh. uh, there were multiple times when I had, four or five children under the age of five. Wow. And so in the home. And so I think that we we have to recognize that perfectionism is something that will wax and wane and that we can make it work for us. And that just like just like screens in a way, they want to be the master, but they actually make a pretty good servant. And perfectionism is in that way. If you can learn how to manage it. Now, this is controversial. If you've, you know, those of you who've read the book know, it's a little bit controversial (laughs) because in the book, I'm very clear about the fact that in the literature, there are some researchers who do not believe that it's possible to have adaptive perfectionism, which is the technical term for perfectionism that doesn't get in your way. They believe that all perfectionism is maladaptive. And there is that extreme. Because perfectionism is one of the diagnostic criteria for a couple of mental health issues, one of which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. That is different from OCD. OCD and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, not the same, two different diagnoses, but one of them has perfectionism as a diagnostic criteria. But we have to understand that nothing is pathological, meaning nothing is a disorder if it doesn't interfere with your ability to live your life. So you can have all these perfectionistic tendencies, but if they work for you, it's not a problem. If you are their master, not their servant, then it's okay. So that's the trick, right? Is Mm -hmm. accepting this is just another part of who I am. I have a tendency to have high expectations of myself. What I say is that perfectionism is when you have unreasonably high expectations combined with a lack of self-love. That's when it becomes the problem. Hmm. If you have high expectations, but those expectations are reasonable for your ability and you have mercy on yourself, 
then you probably are not going to run into a difficulty. So I have so many questions, Lisa, but first I'm thinking back to your own story that you started to share and I'm thinking, okay, so how did you unpack this? We kind of diverted when you were in fifth grade and you kind of told us about that piece of your life at that point in time. And then you jumped to, you know, high school when you were stealing your cum file, which is a great story. But how did you start to handle it or be aware of yourself in that aspect, kind of balancing both the negative and the positive aspects of the perfectionism piece? I was far, far, far into adulthood. It was really an experience when I was in college and finishing up um, an undergraduate degree in English, when my professor said on the first day of class, I don't give 100s. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, I'll make him give me a 100. <laughs> like, I, I get 100, you know? And so I, that was when I first confronted it. But then I started looking at the research. I read peer-reviewed journals for fun. And so I started reading. I I have read until 2018, I read everything ever published on perfectionism. And so I read all these journal articles hmm. and I start, I read a bunch of books on it. I watched TED talk. I, I did all this research on it and I started as a teacher and, and what I knew as a parent. So we have a bunch of children of our own. We've hosted two foreign exchange students and we've had 12 foster children. Hmm. And so I have a lot of parenting experience. And I started thinking about what I had done as a parent, what had worked and what hadn't in managing these things. And I started trying things out on my own family and my students conducting a totally unscientific, unsupervised, unapproved experiment. (laughs) Um, And I started noticing certain things that did work. And I developed a one hour presentation on it and started sharing it. And one year I was speaking at a SEN conference in Colorado and Dr. Jim Webb was Mm -hmm in the group. And he came up to me after and he said, this needs to be a book. Would you write a book for me? I want to publish it. Oh, wow. And that, that was how that book came to be. And Dr. Webb had sadly passed away, but that's, that's where I came up with it. And that that's what led me there, but it has impacted. The book is so meaningful to me. And when I hear people read it and it's useful to them means so much to me because my tendencies in this area cost me friendships They damaged relationships that may have survived, but were damaged. They led to a bout of pretty severe anorexia that I had when I was in 10th grade that my school counselor saved me. My school counselor and my anatomy and physiology teacher literally saved my life. And I, I harmed myself in so many ways, physically and emotionally and socially through it that I really wanted to see if there was anything that I could do to spare someone else that pain because Mm. it's been painful. Wow. So with all of your knowledge and, you know, the experience that you've had, thinking back, what advice would you have appreciated, you know, growing up or would you have wanted your parents to have heard? I think the thing that I needed and that I think really every child needs is to hear from almost every adult in their life. I'm not saying that every adult who knows a kid needs to say this, but like from teachers, ecclesiastical leaders, parents, that there is nothing that they need to do to be loved and be worthy. That that's where the lack of self-love comes from. Like that's where the the pathological perfectionism comes from is this like, I won't, I won't fit in, I won't be accepted unless I'm I'm perfect, right? Mm-hmm. And we get so into the idea of perfectionism as being without flaw, and we forget like the root word. Like one of the things I talk about, one of the things I mention sometimes, not every time, but sometimes when I'm talking about perfectionism, I bring up this this verse in the Bible where Jesus says, be therefore perfect, even as I am perfect. And, and I tell people, you know, that word translated, it means whole or complete. It doesn't mean without flaw. Right. And that paradigm shift into perfectionism as just a sense of completion. Are you whole? Not are you without flaw? 
100%. So how can we get our parents? And I'm talking, you know, nowadays, 2022, these parents who are, you know, asking us, teachers, GIS, GISs, how can we get these parents to understand that um, in a way that meets any culture, any religion, any background, any just parents who love their kids and want the best for them, how can we get them to do that in that way that just says, I love you. You're my kid. You're worthy. It's very difficult because when you're working with gifted children, you're really working with a gifted family, mm-hmm. whether it's totally. nature or nurture as, or what, what really we're coming to find out is it's a complex interdependence of both nature and nurture. Those, it, those kids came from this family. And if the kid is gifted, it's very, very likely that the parents are gifted too because they inherited some and they were raised in some. And most parents raised their children very similarly to the way they themselves were raised. Yep. I know for a fact that my children are at least third generation gifted. You know, my mother was a National Merit Scholar. My mother is a Mensa, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so like it, it's, it, it does, it is heritable. But also it's environmental. So one of the things we have to do is recognize that those parents, especially because giftedness has, has, is very unevenly treated in schools to this day, but especially when these parents were in school. Every parent of a gifted kid I have met has their own pain yeah. from school. They almost all have PTSD, post-traumatic school disorder. <laughs> And they're trying to prevent that from their kids. And what it comes across to us is like overbearing hovercraft parents yes. who are have unreasonable expectations of everyone, unreasonable expectations of the school, unreasonable expectations of their kid, unreasonable expectations of the teachers, unreasonable expectations of everyone. Yes. I think one of the most important things to understand as a teacher, as an educator, and when I had this paradigm shift for myself, it changed my world, was that. Every parent of a gifted kid is in pain. Hmm. They still have that childhood pain and they are determined that their child will not suffer that pain. It all comes from a place of protection, Hmm. of trying to make sure their child doesn't go through their whole life with the same pain they did. And they think they, they they have right thinking about that, like we want to protect our children from unreasonable pain, but they have wrong thinking about how to go about it. They think that if they make sure that their child is always right, that they always defend their child, whether their child is, you know, my country, right or wrong kind of attitude, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They'll lie for them. They'll do their work for them. They do all these things out of love, but misguided. And so I think one of the things we have to do is make sure that we connect parents with organizations like SING so that they can participate in SING model parent groups so that they can heal themselves. I personally recommend that every parent of a gifted child, if if it's at all possible, should seek professional counseling. Because I have yet to meet a gifted adult who does not have residual childhood pain. Hmm. That if they resolve their own pain, they will be able to have more reasonable expectations of their children. Wow. A lot of the projection onto the children, a lot of the avatar-like behavior is because of their own sense of inadequacy, their own fear, their own pain. It's why they they want their kid in the gifted program, not because it's where their kid belongs, but so that they can talk about it at PTA meeting. Right. Yeah. We yeah. see a lot of that. And you nailed that, it. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not arrogance necessarily. Right. I mean, sometimes it is, right? There are mean girls. Um, but it's not necessarily arrogance. A lot of times it's fear, it's uncertainty, it's insecurity mm-hmm. and, and a fear that it's, that their own inadequacy is going to somehow be a contagion to their children. And they're trying to protect their children socially. They want them to be popular. They want, they want them to be everything that they weren't. And unfortunately they go about it in a way that almost assuredly makes it manifest. Yeah. And I, part of your book really talks about like the overscheduling of parents and how it's so important to have like low stake failure 
And those opportunities to have that unstructured play versus like, we got to go to this sport and we got to go to this lesson and we got to go to this tutoring and we got to go, you know, all the overscheduling that's happening in our society right now. The overscheduling is a danger. I was kind of hoping that COVID would do a reset, but it Mm. seems to be coming back. Yeah, totally. Um, I was really hoping that people would dial back and go, you know what? There's some joy to be found when you don't have somewhere to go every single night of the week. But I think, so what I would say though, practically for teachers vis-a-vis parents is that they can, one of the things that teachers can do is assure parents, you know, that their their child is a whole person, not just a brain in a jar, and that you see the child as a whole person and connect them with resources like saying, recommend some books, be, be a resource hub. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be able to say the one magic sentence that's going to change the parent's mind. But if you connect them with enough resources, if you make it okay for kids to be just kids Mm -hmm. to just be a normal person and not be perfect. And if you celebrate the parent, parents just want to be reassured that they're making the right choices for their kids. And so I think a lot of times teachers, we don't, we get so caught up in the content and test scores and things like that and, and behavior that we forget that what every parent wants to hear is I love your kid. Yes. And you're a great parent. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're clearly a great parent and asking them questions. So I start every parent conference with a question and I have a whole set of them that I ask. but I might ask something like, which grandparent is your child most like, mm-hmm. That's or cool. my favorite thing. I know what my favorite thing about your kid is. Can you tell me what your favorite thing is? Or if your child were stranded on a desert Island, what do you think would be their number one skill that would get them through? Mm-hmm. That's so little things like that. Yeah. It's so much fun. And when when you start, when you start a parent conference like that, and then you eventually segue into, and by the way, this kid who we both mutually love never turns in any work. It's a lot (laughs) easier conversation, (laughs) right? It's a lot easier conversation. But I think that we as teachers have so much power when we're sending out an email, how much extra time does it really take? To share something that, uh, to share something that a that a student did or said that was cute or clever or sweet or kind, it, it takes ten seconds, and it's so powerful, and it heals parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, gifted parents are the walking wounded because consider the fact that they're not allowed to celebrate their child's achievements anywhere they go. They can't say, oh, my kid did great on this project because everybody else is like, bragger. (laughs) Well, of course they did great. It's easy for them. And they think every, like so many people are constantly judging them. So many gifted parents tell me, like they'll send me emails. I don't even know them. They send me an email like, my kid did really well on this. And I think you're the only one who would understand. Mm-hmm. that's sad that it's a yeah. stranger. Yeah. Right. Oh, so these parents gosh. just, they don't fit in. They didn't fit in when they were kids and they don't fit in now because what their kids have as a strength is not valued by our society. In fact, the opposite almost, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, we like to say that we want people to be smart, but not too smart. Yeah. And then we want to take those services away. if. Right. It's highlighting or being highlighted too much. That's right. Oh, so Lisa, I'm so curious. What would you want your teachers or your parents to have said to you back in, you know, if you could say something now to your past self, what would you have wanted to have heard back then? You're more than your mind. You're more than your mind. And I, I think also what I... I, I, you know, it's hard to say, right? Um, it's hard for us to know what what would have set us on a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that I'm the best person to answer that question only because I just was enmeshed in so much abuse. But I think that for a child living in a more standard home, mm-hmm. I think 
I think the most important thing is for the adults to reveal their own failures. Mm-hmm. We tend to hide failure from kids or react to it badly. Things as small as like being cut off in traffic or being late to something, how we respond. I mean, I think it's so ironic, even, even if people aren't religious, I think they'll be able to relate to this. I think it's so ironic that some of the highest contention moments in families are trying to get everybody out the door for church. <laughs> And yeah, <laughs> yeah. yelling, right? You know, because we go to, you know, church is one of these, or, or synagogue or mosque, or, you know, whatever the religious tradition that we go in, it's a place where everybody's just supposed to be this perfect family, right? And, and everybody's, you know, spit shine and wearing their church clothes and all of this. And I think that one of the things that we do as parents sometimes is we fail to model how we manage failure ourselves and making it okay, right? Like, so a lot of times what we do is when something goes wrong, we either never bring it up with the kids and we never talk about how we're working through it or they see us throw a fit There's or, or, or lose it, right? There's hardly any middle ground. Kids rarely see how the adults in their lives manage low-level failure. Yeah. And that's a really great mental piece to say low level versus what is high level failure. I think that's really important to differentiate those two. High level failure is when somebody is physically or emotionally harmed. Mm -hmm. That's high level failure. There is no, there is no high level failure at school. No, unless, unless someone's being bullied, right? Like, or, or abused in some way, but like schoolwork, there's no high stakes there. Really. We like to call it high stakes testing, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not really high level failure. Right. But parents can model things like when they, they cook something and it doesn't go right is unpacking that with kids. Like, Hey, I cooked this and it came out really badly. I want to do it again. Do it with me. Let's walk through. Let me see if I can figure out where I went wrong. Yes. And it's that everyday low-level failure that really turns into the habits or the unintended consequences of really who we are. Yes. It gives you the skill to apply when the big stuff comes. Right. But it has to be practiced and it has to be practiced over and over and over again. You cannot sit a kid down and in a conversation say, it's okay if you're not perfect. And then the next day you're beating yourself up because you're not perfect and your kid hears you. Bingo. So important for parents to model for their children. Yes. Day after day. So as we wrap up with you, Lisa, um, is there any last main message or thoughts that you would like to share with our parents that are listening, our teachers that are listening? Sure. So we've been talking about perfectionism, but I also have written that book, Living Gifted, um, that's specifically a manual for gifted kids. And there are 52 tips in there, but um, do we have time for me to share like my top three? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay. The top three things that I think every gifted kid needs to develop as a skill that will be the most value to them in home and school and in their life going forward. The first one is to develop a strong internal locus of control. So that's the technical psychological term for when when something goes wrong in your life, that you're willing to accept the part that you played in it, that you're not constantly blaming others or, you know, like, oh, well, I just have this bad temper because my great grandfather is Irish. Like I tried to use that (laughs) for the first 40 years of my life. Right. So um, my, one of my, one of my grandfathers is a hundred percent Irish. So I'm like 25, I'm actually like almost 50% Irish and like we can, we can be, have a temper, right. We're still mad at the British, right. Like, (laughs) even though I haven't lit, right. Anyway, so that strong internal locus of control where you look to yourself first and accept responsibility with mercy, right? Like, oh, you know what? That is on me but it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It means, you know, I'm fine. Everything is okay. Uh, But next time I will, you know, try to do that better. Um, And then not, not blaming others, not being a blame caster. The second one is timing. This is a specific technique where 
you, I, I wrote about this in the perfection of the book too, but if you have something that you don't like to do, time how long it takes you. And you will find that you've wasted a bunch mm-hmm. of your life resenting something that took 12 minutes, right? Like, so I use changing sheets as an example, but there are so many things like kids resist cleaning their rooms or doing the dishes. And they're like lying on the floor, writhing in frustration when they don't, um, when they don't, um, uh, they could have they easily gotten it done in less time, right? They're wasting mental energy. And that is just such a waste, right? So just time, just mm. time things. If you don't like doing something, time it, and it gives you the mental energy to do it. And that is a skill that works for schoolwork. It works for home. It works for work work. It works everywhere. Definitely. Young, old, like my second grader could use that tip. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. The last one is the last one. And I think it's a great one to wrap up with because it's such a need for gifted kids is to learn how to self-soothe in boredom. Hmm. Because you're going to need that skill for the rest of your life. It's not like you're going to, I think a lot of kids, parents complain, you know, oh, my kid is bored in school. Oh, my kid is bored in school. As if the day that they walk across and are handed a diploma, they'll never encounter boredom again. Right? Like all of a sudden they're never going to be bored again in their life. Well, so sorry. Spoiler, (laughs) you're going to be bored again. And learning how to self-soothe in boredom, and that will look different for different people, whether you learn how to zentangle and and do that when you're bored, whether you memorize poetry and recite it in your head when you're bored, whatever mechanism you use. But learning how to self-soothe in boredom, to me, the third of my top three skills that I think gifted kids need to manifest in their world. Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. So, Lisa, what is zentangle? Zentangle is doodling with intention. Oh, it is yeah. actually a trademarked term. Okay. You can Google it. Um, and these people developed it. There's been some pretty good research on its impact on um, mental health. And it it is it looks complicated because it's a lot of different patterns in a small space. Hmm. But anything is possible one stroke at a time, I think, is their slogan. And Zentangle can be done with nothing more than a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper. And it is something that can entertain you for hours because you are, it's not doodling by itself. Doodling can actually increase boredom because it makes you aware you're bored. Right. But if you're zentangling, you have a job, right? Like, oh, I'm making a zentangle. Into something else. Yeah. Then it doesn't feel bad. So there are a number of zentangle books for children. I've taught zentangle to kids as young as four. Hmm. Um, One time I was on a plane with really severe turbulence and taught zentangle to the panicked woman next to me. Um, but it's, it's one of those wonderful tricks. So yeah, I, I highly recommend it. I think we have a lesson in our future. Well, (laughs) I was going to say, it sounds like stuff we did as kids, you know, and, you know, turn things into things and reminds me of, you know, Leonardo da Vinci turning into, you know, whatever. Yeah. Things all of it. up. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, Lisa, this has been a wonderful conversation and we really appreciate your time and your, just your expertise and your experience and just all the things that you have shared from the suicide prevention um, and just even these important things that we need to really be comfortable as teachers saying to parents, you know, you are parenting well, you have created this amazing kid. So we really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure. Yes. We look forward to being in touch with you in the near future, hopefully, and continuing to, you know, follow you in your maybe upcoming books. Who knows? Thank you so much. And if any parents have any questions um, or teachers have questions, they're welcome to contact me. My website is giftedguru.com and you can contact me at lisa at giftedguru.com. Um, and there are some videos on the YouTube channel, free videos that teachers and parents can watch for helping gifted kids succeed in their world. So there's lots, lots of information there. Is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you wanted to share at all? Well, you know, I already mentioned like I could talk about it all night, but I think that we, I think that we've shared a lot of ideas for people to think about. And I think just if I were going to say one last thing, yeah, go I would for just it. say that I would just say that 
finding the strategies that work for you and your children is not something that you owe to other people, meaning that you don't need to let yourself be influenced either as a teacher or a parent by what other people say worked for them. Like if they have an idea and it works for you, great. But if it doesn't, it's okay if the thing that works for you in managing all of these issues is something that no one else has done before. This is uncharted territory. And what works for you may not make sense to others, but you don't owe them that. Mm. One time I was on a plane and there was this young child kind of having a meltdown and the parents were so embarrassed. They were so worried about all the other passengers. And I got up and I went over and I knelt next to the mother and I said, you don't know any of these people. None of them are worth your relationship with your daughter. You just take care of her and don't worry Mm -hmm. about anybody else. They'll never see you again. And I think a lot of times we worry so much about what other people are thinking about our children, judging us as parents and that we, we act differently toward our children than we would otherwise act. There is, it's actually so a true. physics principle that the observer changes the observed. Mm. And when we feel that we're being watched and judged, we behave differently. Absolutely. And we need to, we need to let that go. I love that you stood up and said that to that mom, because that is probably exactly what she needed to hear in that moment. I think our listeners she started need to crying. hear that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> she started Aww. crying. And I think, I think we just get so judgy mm-hmm. because we have this expectation of perfectionism and social media has not made it any better. I was no. just going to say, and, do you think that has made it worse? <laughs> so much worse. So much worse. Because not only do we see all these models of unreasonable perfectionism, but we also um, we also are told that it is possible mm. and that is not true. I don't, I don't remember if I put the story in the book, but one of the stories I planned to include, and I'm not sure if it made it was, um, that there was a, a story I read in Vogue magazine one time about a, a model walking down the street of New York with a friend of hers, also a model. And they walked past a Brentano's bookstore and there was, um, a series of magazine display in the window and the one model pointed to, this is a true story, pointed to a cover magazine and said, I just wish I looked like her. And the other model looked closely and said, that is you. Oh my gosh. Whoa. She didn't even recognize herself. Mm. And so we are comparing ourselves to how Hollywood <laughs> makes people look. They don't even look like that. Even Kate Middleton, who is slender to the point of thinness, had magazines photoshopping her to make her look anorexic in her wedding dress. Mm. So we have got to let that go. So not only is that a problem, but we also know that a lot of time on screens decreases empathy. This has been the subject of a lot of studies Mm. that you become less empathetic when you spend a lot of time interacting with screens Mm. on social media. And so it's a double whammy. So we need, to, we need to dial that back. Wait, let's do a whole discussion. Let's do another episode on screens. Yes. yes. All right, we're putting you <laughs> <Okay>. down. <laughs> Put me down. Well, Lisa, it has been wonderful to talk to you. We really do appreciate it. And gosh. And just it, opening up and being so honest. Yeah, and your story huge. is remarkable. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, thank you so much. I think the one, the only way that you're, pain that you go through can hurt you permanently is if you don't use it to serve others. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do appreciate what all you've said about the suicide prevention because I have two, actually three teenagers, but it, you know, when you're, when you're living those years and you're just thinking about what they're going through and um, I don't know, it just, it just really changes you and you just want to, protect them so much, you know, with everything that they're yep. going through. So, you know, cause you feel like you're okay, you know, you've gotten through everything you've gotten through and, but you know, you think about your own kids and you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, hang in there. We love you. You're just so great. We love you. Yeah. And I would say this to any teacher or, or parent listening is that just the fact that you are taking the time to listen to a podcast like this shows mm. that you're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lisa, you are amazing. And I know that you have, 
your family is growing, your son's getting married, and you know, you've just got a lot of great things just at the cusp. So thank you for being here with us and sharing just your heart. It's just amazing. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I look forward to speaking with you again. All Have right. A good night. Okay. All right, you too. Bye, Lisa. <laughs> Bye-bye. Wow, Jessica, this was a truly incredible interview with Lisa Van Gemmert. And we are just so touched by the vulnerability that she shared and just her personal experiences um, that really are heartfelt and and sensitive. And it just is really taking me aback to realize that with these students that come through a school door and a school building, you just don't know what they are dealing with. You don't know what the experience might have been at home or, you know, what's going on in their minds, especially as they're growing older and going through their teenage years. But I just think, man, you really just have to get to know these kids on a personal level to really help them through the process of dealing with perfectionism. Yeah, because you never know what has helped mold them along the way and what has made them become the way that they are and why they do the things that they do. Absolutely. And I think that really is something that Lisa speaks openly and freely about. And we really do appreciate that piece that she shared about her own experiences. And just through the stages of life, how different ages she was dealing with different things, whether it was the way she looked or maybe it was healing from an abusive situation or maybe it was just getting through college and getting taking good grades. 10 years to get through college because of that fear that of not getting that good grade in a course. Or life. Life happens and getting married and having kids and yep. still pursuing your career goals is super important too. So if you have not read her book, it's titled Perfectionism. I highly suggest and recommend grabbing a copy and just diving in just to hear more of her story and all of the tips and suggestions and kind of working out and what perfectionism entails. What we do is we come up with a bunch of different things, good stuff like mind, a friend that you stick with, and to keep yourself and to keep Welcome to the segment Student Voices, where we are passing them the mic to share about their gifted adventures. Um, I'm a senior in high school and I'm 18. Um, my favorite subject in school right now, it always depends on what we're doing that day. It changes every single day based on what my teachers decide to do. It's usually physics, sometimes it's backstage theater, and sometimes it's digital image design studio internship. When I grow up, I want to go into user experience, but more so managing and like using data to affect user experience design more than doing the design myself. As for extracurricular activities, um, with school, I'm a part of drama club. I'm on the costume part of drama club, so I work on the costumes for all of our plays and our next musical that we're going to be producing. Um, and outside of school, I am the branding director of InterAlliance. I am working with a nearby college professor to set up an after-school coding program for younger students in the area in the I do stuff like regularly unorganized outside of school almost everything crafty and creating I do on a very regular basis I'm very proud of myself in two separate ways I like to find a way to be proud of myself um, in my career path and for my future as well as just for what's happening right now I find that separating those two things is very important for me because as a creative, I've always been like encouraged, oh, you do this art thing, like when you're going to start making money off of it. And after a failed business attempt, I've decided that 
that you don't have to make money off of your art for it to be worthwhile. The thing that I'm most proud of recently is the other day I sewed a dress for no reason other than because I wanted to wear it when I went to a museum park with my friends. And the big thing that I'm most proud of myself for is what I'm doing, um, what I'm doing right now with my marketing plan with my, the company that I'm working for. Looking back at being identified as gifted is really weird for me because there's always a part of you that's like, oh, so I'm different, but like better. It's like <laughs> there's also um, my school originally, like back in the day when I was a young one, um, <laughs> there'd be like a certain time out of the day where like the group of kids that were gifted would go off and do their own thing and then just come back to the class that they were already at. And it was always weird for me to like have to leave because I'd be like, I don't want to miss things, but also like I have to go. And that's always been odd to be like separated. I like I understand it was positive, but like as as a kid, you don't understand how big of an impact that is. You're just like, oh, yes, I'm going somewhere else now. And now as a senior in high school, it's very weird because there's less so of a like designated gifted program. It's more so just like a lot of the gifted the gifted like I kind of functions of a classroom have become honors classes instead of like a separate gifted area. And I stopped taking mainly honors classes, I think, after sophomore year, which was the year that ended with at the like start of the pandemic for me. Um which is very odd <laughs> to be like in honors but really struggling with school. And, like, really just hating it. Because, like, why am I learning, like, courses that I don't like to, like, at the next level? There's no point in that for me. And when I, I noticed when I stopped being hung up about being, like, an honors kid. Like, oh, this is my, this is my duty to be successful. Um, and just taking classes that I wanted to take, depending on, like, leveling them based on how much I actually cared about them. And the past two years, I've been doing so much better in school now that I've stopped being hung up on that that weird label. Um, as easy as it is to avoid, <laughs> one of the most important things in being successful just like in high school as a whole and just like feeling like you're successful and worthy and loved is just finding your friend group, which has always somehow come naturally to me, even though like I, f I feel like I've switched friend groups 30 times, but there's always those few three people who've always been there, you know? The hardest thing you can do that will just improve your life so much is getting up to people and talking to them. And that's how I befriended the person who now both goes to everything with me and drives me to school every single day. <laughs> And, like, we saw how every single new Star Wars movie together. It's so hard to, like, d decide if someone is safe enough for you to approach. But taking that risk almost always pays off. You just have to do that. If there's someone you want to befriend, go, go be their friend. Because I'm sure that they need another one. Everyone... Everyone wants other people to approach them, and everyone is too scared to approach people. There, as for benefits and disadvantages of being gifted, like who the teacher is and how the teacher decides to teach affects how successful you can be in their class so much, at least for me. Um, that's really important for people to acknowledge that gifted students learn totally differently from from other kids. I don't think any two people will learn exactly the same way. And as much as gifted is a step to, away from everyone has to sit and do their things the same way at the same time, um, it's not as big of a step as some people might wish for or some students might perhaps need. As for after high school, after high school is challenging for me to figure out right now. So, currently my plans are to major in data analytics with a minor in something design and art-related. And then I'm looking around at colleges, and nothing is encouraging that combination. So, even though what you want 
isn't something that there's an easy line for. You gotta find those great mentors and people who will work even at colleges. I know that there are plenty of sweet like people in charge of programs that are so amazing and they'll work with you even if you aren't planning on going to their college just to get you on the right track in the right place. And if you're truly interested in what you want to do and you have and you're willing to put in the work to do it successfully they'll almost always work with you to find your own path even if it's something that's weird or like there isn't a formal like track for everyone almost every college i'm sure will find a way to work that in with you everyone for listening to another Adventures in Being Gifted episode. Please make sure you subscribe and review us wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us again next time for more Adventures in Being Gifted. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Being Gifted Pod. And join us again next time for more Adventures in Being Gifted. <laughs>